beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Sean, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. I woke up this morning, you know, and, you know, had a good breakfast, had some toast and eggs. Um, feeling pretty good. I had a cup of coffee. So, you know, I'm a little uh, jittery, but that's okay. I hope you enjoyed that because the, the podcast with Jade, you guys were saying how I never asked you that. So now you can say I've asked you how you've been doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Keep it consistent. Uh, all right. So today on today's program, we have with us Katie Faust. She is a second year student in the MA program in Applied Health Sciences, Health and Physical Education at Brock University. Her research explores the culture of grief in sports. She was an undergraduate student when his teammate on the Brock's women's rugby team died of cancer after a short 11-month diagnosis. The death of a teammate was unfathomable, and this experience led her to undertake an autoethnographic thesis to explore more deeply grief in a sporting context, how sport gives us a place to grieve, and how sport ignores grief. In addition, she uses writing as an inquiry to reflectively make sense of experience. She will be starting the PhD program in Exercise Sciences, Physical and Cultural Studies at University of Toronto in September of 2017, studying youth, mental health, and physical activity. Katie, welcome. Good to be here. Great. So uh, let's start off uh, with how you actually decided to go to Brock University. What uh, city are you originally from? I'm originally from Port Elgin, Ontario, so a really small tourist town on the west coast of Lake Huron, closest major city's own sound, I think. And uh, I remember like choosing my university program, and I wasn't sure at all that I wanted to do any sort of post-secondary. And then just like perusing the internet, looking at programs, I found sport management at Brock, and I was I was sold immediately. I wasn't I wasn't sold on school, but as soon as I saw like there was a program that was for me, um, that then I applied. I got in, and it's, uh, it's all history from there. Oh, that's pretty cool. So how, so was sport like a very important, obviously, part of your life before that during high school and elementary? Yeah, I I didn't begin playing uh, organized sport until I was 11 years old. I grew up on a, on a small farm and uh, we were always too busy. But when my parents split, then we were, then we were allowed to play organized sports. So I started playing soccer at age 11. And then by my second year of soccer, I was asked to play on a, a rep travel team. So I was that. And then by my third year, it was I was playing the house league team, the rep team, and then a county-wide team. And then by my fourth year, I was playing on four teams. And then then it was high school. And then it was my first my first rugby practice. I watched my cousin throw up everywhere, and and I was sold. They they ran her into the ground and uh, she she threw up everywhere and I loved it so I missed the first seven seasons but fifteen seasons started that spring and I uh, within it was my first twenty minutes of playing ever and I thanked the the referee Bob Illman for it he came up to me and he asked me if I had ever heard of Montreal rugby and I was like no I didn't even know rugby was like a sport until like six months ago and. Uh, He's like, okay, like talk to me after the game. And I was like, okay, sure. After the game, he hands me contact information for the Team Ontario coaches and 
he encourages me to try out and I was like okay like sure and then I went home told my told my dad about it I had to beg him to, to let me go to tryouts and so here I was like a 15 year old going to these Ontario under 17 tryouts and uh, by some by some miracle I made the team and uh, had to sign a waiver because I was a couple years underage um, and then played for Team Ontario and I was playing for Team Ontario for it was close to five years. Uh, injuries in and out, um, in and out of seasons. But uh, once I hit uh, Brock University, I, uh, I was coming off of a broken ankle and then I had a couple like really shaky seasons and then sat out my third year and then I came back fourth year really strong and uh, I'm, out, I'm out now. But uh Looking forward to returning in, in the fall, for sure. That's pretty cool. That, I like that uh, journey that you've had with rugby. Now, what kind of a farm did you guys have before that? We had a, a beef farm. My uncle owns a dairy farm, and my cousin has pigs. Did you find that, like, that work ethic? Because I know, like, you know, farms and, you know, it's, it's very hard work. Did you find that that translated well into the sporting life? Like, did you have a head start? on a lot of these other, you know, kids your age because of, again, like, you know, working hard and, you know, obviously maybe probably being in shape a lot more. I, would, I wouldn't say that I necessarily had an advantage. I had a lot of, like, older siblings who did the majority of the, the grunt work on the farm, but if I'm going to, like, credit any of my athletic successes to anyone, it would be um, my older brother. He's seven years older than me, and he enjoys sports a lot, and... uh so him and I would always be out in the farm playing. Like we'd be playing catch over over the barn. So we'd take the baseball and throw it over the roof of the barn, and have a race to run around the barn and get it. And we'd hit like baseballs across the yard in the front and front lawn. He'd stand up on top of a hill and you know throw a football at me and make me run down the hill and catch it. And <laughs> was was he the so he was the one who threw up? No, that was that was my when cousin. you were watching. Oh, that was your cousin. Did what was it about your cousin throwing up that made you say, you know, this is it for me? Because a lot of people might have gone the opposite direction. I don't think like soccer didn't really challenge me in the way that in the way that rugby did. Like your your physical limits are are tested, and as soon as your physical limits are maxed out, that's when your mental game starts. So you saw that, and you were okay. Fight or flight. I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna jump in here. I want to face this challenge. No, that's pretty cool. I like that. I respect that. Yeah, I've never actually played rugby. And only, I think, recently watched, wasn't there like a rugby World Cup or something that, that was, uh, with those, and those, there's that team that has like some certain kind of dance they do in the beginning. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, the Hawkeye with New Zealand. Yeah, oh, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So I watched that and it, it, it's a really intimidating game. As I said in like prior podcasts, I was a basketball kind of guy. And still am. But so as you move forward, did you keep with any other sports like soccer or did you just focus um, all your energy on rugby? Yeah, I was I was fully into rugby as, as soon as I was in it. I didn't have time for, for anything else. Um, so I played Team Ontario and that was the practice every week. And then leading up to like our week-long trip at Nationals. But on top of that, I was playing on a club team. So to be insured at the provincial level, you need to be registered with a club. So I was playing on clubs, and the Bruce County RFC Banshees was our was our women's team name. 
and we played we played on Saturdays and we practiced on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then after practice, I'd help out with the under six flag rugby team. Say under six. Yeah, that's the first. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they, they're really starting them young. Wow, I guess yeah, hey, it's a good sport, right? It teaches, I'm guessing, a lot of different lessons for life. And, you know, that that's great. And I'm glad you're able to help out the kids starting up and make it sort of more well-known. And cause it's like, I didn't really know about the sport till way later in life. Yeah, well, it was, it was the same for me. Um, I didn't really get my first taste of it until grade nine. And So does, when, when you were looking at different universities, I didn't know Brock had a rugby team. Um, so, because I guess it, it's not something I really looked into. But does every school have a rugby team Cause it, uh, like for not, your university level? I don't think every school has a rugby team. I know the University of Windsor doesn't, and that was one of the deterrents for me not going there. So when I had applied to Brock, I had also applied to Laurentian and Windsor. Both of them didn't have rugby teams. And so I figured that, you know, if I'm going to go to school as someone who wasn't really sure about it to begin with, I'm going to need rugby. And so, thankfully, I got into Brock, and that was, it was really a no-brainer for me from there. Wow. So that, that's cool. I'm glad you went to Brock. I'm glad uh, we've, we've connected. So what kind of injuries, like, I know you said, like, it's, a, it's a really rough game. I sort of look at it as, like, football without pads. Is that a good analogy? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can no, you please explain really to the listeners? <laughs> uh, How would you explain rugby? <laughs> it's more like organized chaos. Like, respectful, organized chaos. So mm. there's one ball, which means there's only one point of contact. It's not like football where everyone's in contact with each other for the duration of the entire play. It's 80 minutes, almost nonstop, of just single point of contact. Wow. That's a good point because in football, so I played high school football, you have a lot of moments where you're kind of, the, the play is dead you're kind of stopping. You don't have to kind of con- keep that endurance level up for the whole game. But like when I've seen rugby, it just looks a lot more, it's like a lot more running, a lot more endurance. And just like you said it, like, you know, you're, I, it just looks like you're running a lot more. Yeah. So with rugby, we'll have set plays per se, but the game is continuous until there's been a penalty or the ball goes out of bounds or there's a score. And someone scores a try. So in theory, you could be playing 80 minutes without a single rest. Um, that doesn't usually happen because uh, certain laws are, are broken easily. Like if the ball drops forward, you know, like then it's a scrum. So it's a lot of high intensity in over, it's high intensity over longer periods of time than other more explosive sports like football, where, you know, you run a play and it's, 12 seconds and then you're gassed and then you're on the sideline and defense comes out like so i'm curious what are some injuries you've had have you broken any bones yeah so my first my first serious injury was a broken collarbone so i had separated my ac joint before but this time i had blocked a kick and when i blocked it i'd slid underneath the the kicker and uh, she'd fallen on me, and I was on my side, and, like, the impact of her on my collarbone just, like, popped it out of my shoulder, really. Um, I needed surgery, so I had uh, CC ligament reconstructive surgery in my right shoulder, and that put me out for a year. And then 
my right before university started, I was at a Team Ontario training camp, and uh, I was tackled awkwardly and broke my left ankle, and that put me out eight weeks. Then I came back, had a good season. I had one um, very serious concussion in in first year. I was zero physical activity for 313 days. So almost a full year of not being allowed to do absolutely anything. And then just in, in, I think it was March of 2015, I tore my ACL in my right knee and then needed surgery the next month to fix that. So I had my surgery and took a couple seasons off just to uh, fully let that heal. And in the meantime, I've been doing CrossFit and uh, starting, starting at the University of Toronto in September for a PhD and I'm looking to use up my last two years of eligibility and get back on the field for that. To give the reader, uh, listeners a perspective, how old are you? 22, 23? 24. Like that. 24. Okay. So before the age of 24, essentially you've broken many bones that like, you know, you get injuries that people don't get in their lifetime, but you know, I'm listening to this. I'm like, wow, you're a warrior. Like, you know, you've gone to battle, you've got scars to prove it, and you're ready to jump back in because obviously you love it so much. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, uh, rugby has really taught me a lot about myself, I think. And even doing this, this research project the last, the last couple of years is, has taught me even more about, uh, about who I am and how I see myself as an athlete and kind of how the world of sports is great but also really not great when it comes to certain things that happen in sport yeah i think that's a good segue to talking about what happened uh, and why you started doing your thesis on this topic so when you're part of the rugby team i'm guessing you weren't injured at that, that time <laughs> and you said you lost a friend so could you explain more of like what happened and the experience of for your, your own grief and maybe the team's grief yeah so uh, second year came along training camp, the whole new influx of rookies. We just called them first years because we had a coach who had a problem with um, kind of demoralizing it is to call someone a rookie when they've like been playing the same amount of time as you almost. So um, we had a good group of, of first years come in. And I remember one player who literally just like outshone everyone else on the team. Like I, I've never seen a work, a work ethic like that before. Like always first to the ball, always, you know, the extra one to make tackles in in practice, anyways. And then, uh, so over the over the course of like training camp, you become really close with your teammates. It's a it's a short amount of time before, you know, things get serious and you're and you're playing 80 minutes against another team who's been doing the exact same thing that you've been doing. And so we had a mediocre season, like couple wins, couple losses, um, and then closer to the end of the season, our fly half, Taylor, thought, thought she had this chest cold. Um, and so, like, she'd go to the walk-in clinic and get prescription meds for it, and she'd be okay. And then, you know, by the end of the season, she just pushed through it for the last couple weeks of the season. And then by the end of the season, she goes back. They finally do blood work, and they, they find out that she has leukemia. Um, and so, immediately... She goes to Hamilton and starts treatment for her leukemia, and things were going well. Um, she was in remission and was getting the final blood transfusion, and her body rejected it, and a week later, she was gone. And she was, it was 
our season opener the next year. Um, we were we were sitting in uh, in Walker Complex at Brock, waiting to get on the bus to go play Western. When our assistant coach got the call from Taylor's mom, and then uh, she had to walk back into this crowd of like 35 girls and you know tell us that that our teammates died, and it wasn't easy for for anyone really. There were a lot of tears, and it was shocking because the year third year we had a giant group of first years they there were more first years than there were um, returning players which is which is odd and I've never met like a group of girls who you know didn't know this player didn't know this teammate but were so supportive um, for everyone else who's going through this loss that they didn't really feel a part of and then how how strong some of the, those girls were to continue to play for the rest of the season. So when I when I had found out, I uh, I quit rugby. Um, I stopped playing that year. I was kind of like withdrawn. Didn't really didn't really talk to anyone. Just kind of did my own thing. Said I was focusing on school, but you know, in third year, I think it was my when my marks were the lowest, to be honest. But uh, I had to pull myself away from rugby for a little bit to to kind of process it because it wasn't happening for me like because since high school like rugby became my athletic escape and so it was really shattering to me when rugby used to be my escape and then it became everything that I needed to run from wow it's uh it's very like heartbreaking to hearing that story and and you said like and having to leave a sport that you love so much as you tried to work through through your loss. And so can you take us through maybe sort of what you tried to use after that, since rugby was your your thing, how did you move forward? That was just a, it was a period of my life that I, I honestly don't remember. Um, it was, it was, it was really dark. So it's hard for me to be like, yeah, this is how I coped because I just, I have no memory of it. I just, you know, and like I've had losses outside of rugby you know, like a step parent, a grandparent, like three grandparents, a sister, like more friends than birthdays I've celebrated. But in the context of sport and to have a teammate die, it was so different compared to any of other losses that I've had. Even if the like the reason for death is the same, like, you know, just last month my aunt passed away from cancer, which is the same thing that Taylor passed away from. But I handled it so much better outside of sport than I did in sport. I felt not responsible for, you know, not protecting my teammates from from something like this. But I felt like as numb as I felt, I felt like I was also experiencing the pain of everyone around me. When um, when Taylor passed away, were you like a leader on the team? Like someone, uh, maybe a senior person or someone a lot of the first years looked up to? What was your role? My role in the team at that at that time was was just was just a senior player. You know, I wasn't a captain. I was friends with Taylor, not as close as some of the other girls were, but like there was a core group of around like seven or eight of us that you know had started together, and so definitely like one of the senior players knew the program well. So I don't know. Like I just always felt that you know just because of my position too, like. I played fullback, and fullback is typically like your extra attacker or your last line of defense. So I felt like, you know, as a fullback on a team, like 
I'm expected to be the last person to stop someone from scoring, you know, the strongest player on the team, the, the impenetrable wall that won't let anything upset my team. And then hearing the news that like Taylor passed away, that's when I knew that I wasn't that. And there was nothing I could do to protect my teammates anymore. Being in the football program that I was in, when you're at that senior level or one of the older players, whether you're designated a captain or not, you know, the younger players definitely do look up to you as a senior player. I mean, I had a lot of guys I looked up to that were not captains, but they were silent leaders. And one way or another, you are a leader. But yeah, that's incredible because being in that position as a fullback, you know, just like you said, you know, you're there to kind of protect things and kind of be that uh, last line of defense. Yeah. And so moving a little forward, like it's, so I'm picturing sort of this whole year and say it was like, just, you don't really remember it. You're, you're really just like, say, probably depressed, very sad, you're numb. I think you were saying, so how do, how do you go from there to wanting to study this topic and do your MA? Cause you said your grades weren't that great. Um, so what, what changed? Was there like a, what was that turning point? Um, I had a, a TA in, in first and second year who was absolutely phenomenal. I kind of owe a lot of my my academic success now to her and for, for pushing me. Um, she kind of showed me that the way I thought wasn't really suited to, to sport management and I needed to push my boundaries um, elsewhere. So she introduced me to um, my supervisor, Dr. Kathy Vanning, and, and we had a couple conversations. And eventually I ended up doing an undergraduate thesis in fourth year, another autoethnography which was learning to become a novice researcher. So when I was in fourth year, I was a research assistant on a Shirk-funded project, and I was just sort of like thrust into the position with no, no formal training, no, no experience at all in research, and was expected to, you know, go into these communities and conduct interviews and get like good quality data for them to continue on with the study and. So I did an autoethnography on that, and then I'd applied to do uh, my MA with Kathy. And at the time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, at first, I thought it, I was thinking uh, more like the socioeconomic impacts of, you know, sporting programs and stigmatized neighborhoods, more so, more to utilize really my minor in economics that I took at Brock. But I remember I just had surgery. And I was watching my niece and nephew, and it just it clicked that I needed to do an autoethnography on the death of a teammate. And boy, as soon as that happened, I immediately started searching for articles. You know, is anyone talking about the death of a teammate? Like, are there any other autoethnographies about loss? Um, and then that could just kind of propelled me into uh, into studying this. And I'll be honest, like when I first um, took on the project I was like oh this is a great way to memorialize Taylor like this is this is what I want to do you know it'll stay with the social history of the team it'll stay with Brock it'll it'll do all these great things um, and then I kind of realized as I've been writing myself through it that it's less about Taylor and it's more about the experience of Greece in the sporting culture like sport doesn't allow us to grieve unless you know it's very it's just memorialized in like tournaments and 
and stuff, moments of silence. It's not, athletes don't really have the opportunity to breathe and to like, to mourn these losses. Yeah. It's interesting because so like I study the, the grief dreams area and you know what, I, until I sort of um, realized what you worked on, I never thought about it because it never occurred, like it never happened to me. So it's definitely, you know, disenfranchised on what people go through that are a part of a team. And so what are some things that you found in the research? Has anyone ever looked at it prior to you? So any research that has been done on the death of a teammate has been, you know, 20-year retrospective quantitative studies approaching it from, you know, a sports psychology lens, not really about like finding meaning in the experience, not about like what the teammates of the athletes are going through. Um, a lot of the literature was based on like people owning tragedies, which like I, under- I understand from my own experience that that became a thing. People in years after Taylor, you know, were very detached from it. They wouldn't come to memorial balloon releases so every year on the 7th of september we'll walk out to the field at brock with a bunch of balloons and we'll release them um, after writing messages on them for taylor and then uh, it became like over over the years people wouldn't do it because well they didn't know taylor or they don't want to step on anyone's toes or anything like that so like from a literature standpoint like there wasn't anything for athletes about this. There was no you know, story you could read that would that would help you in any way. It's like, well, how are you still gonna make that jump shot off your teammate, you know, has a heart attack or I don't know, like and the research on deaths of athletes too are primarily like based in in science and like why why did the athlete die? Not more so like what happens after the athlete dies. Right, yeah, because I know in the movie Concussion, it was about why did they die, not about yeah. the experiences of those other people. So it's it's so interesting. I'm just really just thinking about exactly the topic in itself. And I think I'm, I'm caught a little off, off guard on some of the different issues. I, you're, I have no idea. And so I know a part of what you're doing is actually raising awareness on the topic that's been neglected over the years. And so... What else can you like? Can you say to the listeners and to other people who are maybe a part of sport, um, or are maybe like are in a team? Uh, what would you say to them regarding this issue? I think that like if you're if you're in a position where like you experience some sort of traumatic event or you're grieving in sport and sport was your sport was your safe place, sport was your escape. You need to find something else not to you know just like put a band-aid over that wound but you need to you know you need to seek the resources that you need to find a new safe place until you can go back it's like when like there's a house fire and like you want to rush back into it you know to save everything else that's in it when you need you need to get out and then really evaluate it from the outside before you head back into it Wow, that's a good analogy. Did your team or did the coaching staff, did they provide any type of outlet other than, so like what I see sports and I see loss of like players or teammates, 
people you see them kind of wanting to honor the person by putting maybe numbers on on their body or shoes or jersey somewhere uh, of the player who who died obviously or like you said moment of silence stuff like that was there any other type of maybe team event uh some some place uh some time given to uh all you guys so you could talk about the loss of taylor and how it's affecting each of you because in my head, I'm thinking, you know, it's a difficult one because you're kind of, you have a mission. You have, you know, a goal in that we're try, we we want to win this game and this is how we're going to do it strategy-wise. This is how we're going to execute. And you'd think that as if you're the coach or if you're the leader of a team or, or the captains of the team, you know, you could maybe obviously see it as some sort of a distraction as if players are emotionally distraught. But was there like another aspect where you guys were allowed to kind of have those conversations? After getting the news about Taylor, our our game was postponed. They didn't play again until the next the next week. They played University of Toronto, beat them seven to five, and that was the last game that Brock had won until this year. So almost three seasons later. But, you know, after, by the, but by the next game, we had jerseys that were outfitted with the TW patch uh, on the shoulder. During Taylor's um, fight with cancer, we had bracelets made that said rock cancer. And so when we would, we would tape our wrists for the games and we'd write rock cancer on our wrists and we'd do little things like that. We took a bus um, to her funeral the entire team so that was good wow. um, it's when you, like when you look back on it like I've been to funerals of athletes and funerals of non-athletes and they're so different in the way that even we we remember them in funerals like in late 2015 I had an old friend from from high school commit suicide and in you know in the gym where we had his his funeral like the walls of the gym were just lined with his jerseys. Like there were 34 jerseys and I counted them and 34 was his hockey number. So it's, it's weird to find meaning in little places like that. But sorry, in terms of like any like support, you know, we weren't given, you know, we were told like if you need to talk to somebody, go make an appointment with personal counseling services. There was never you know, no sports psychologist came in to talk to the team as a group. No one helped us deal with it together. It was very individualized. Like if you're if you're struggling, like sure you can talk to your teammates, but your teammates hurting just as bad as you are. So seek outside resources, but they weren't there for us immediately. Yeah, I can understand that because many people aren't good at sitting with people suffering. They're not, you know, say trained clinicians. They don't, you know, they're not counselors. They're, you know, like coaches or, or a player, or they really like the strategy of it all. But they were never trained in how to deal with emotions, right? And I think, like, moving forward, that's something, you know, I say, like, maybe coaches should actually um, have a, like, maybe there's a handbook, or maybe you could write a book in the future on, for a coach on how to handle um, or different things they could do to talk to their players about grief after the fact. As you said, like there are some interesting things you guys did. You took the bus to the funeral. I think that's amazing. Um, you said you wore the patch uh, and you did sort of different things to uh, honor 
Taylor. But then you're saying afterwards, right? Like there, it diminishes, right? Like it fades. Like a lot of people after loss, when they you know would lose someone, their coworkers, friends, they'll acknowledge it. But then the next year, no, you never get a a reminder card that people are thinking about you. And I think that's maybe is that what you're talking about in the sense of as years prior go, like that sort of honoring Taylor kind of fades. Yeah, like I think what like our biggest deterrent was we had a couple players who were really sensitive. Um, to the issue, like it became almost taboo to say Taylor's name. Um, and then this year, when we did the balloon release, I, you know, I stood in front of a team of strangers, like a bunch of girls that I didn't really know or did know, and feel like I don't know now. And I had to explain to them, you know, why they were they were here and why they were you know, going to stand on the field and release balloons with us. And so, like, like, who are these, who are these faces? Like, is it fair to them to kind of, like, push this grief onto them, being like, because you're on the women's rugby team, you're going to memorialize this athlete just like we did? Or is it just time to accept that, no, this isn't their loss? So it's one of those weird things in sport where it's like, where do you draw the line in terms of, memorializing athletes like where is it inappropriate is it inappropriate like there's so many questions surrounding grief and sport and it's a lot to it's a lot when you when you think about kind of like the, the politics of memorializing athletes yeah i think you you raised an important question of people coming that never knew and they almost feel obligated to and is that even, is that good? Or is it just should be the people that knew the individual? Um, so the very interesting questions that I think a lot of people said haven't really asked and they don't really know the answer to. So as you move forward, like, do you think, like, what are your hopes for sort of that balloon release? Like after, when you leave to Toronto, you're not going to be around, right, at Brock. So are you hoping that they continue it or are you hoping something else changes? Like maybe there's a day that, Brock memorializes all their sports stars that have died. Yeah, because, you know, Taylor Taylor wasn't the first, you know, Brock athlete to, to pass away and she's certainly not gonna be the last. So I think that it's important for for the institutions to, to recognize it. Um, because it is important to to, you know, the Department of Athletics. But like as for what I'm gonna do personally, like I think in itself, like applying to the University of Toronto and accepting the offer is a way that like I've subconsciously, you know, continued to memorialize Taylor because we didn't we didn't win a lot after after Taylor passed away. You know, we beat the University of Toronto seven to five, and then I never played another game in a Badger jersey where I won. You know, and most of our losses were outrageous, like seventy two nothing against Guelph University, or a hundred and forty nothing like really big blow it so and so I think that going to the University of Toronto is my way of you know not letting go of that one little win that we had Taylor's win after after she had passed away so I think when September 7th comes around this year um not sure what day of the week it is it's on but I know that I'll have my own moment of silence whether you know I am in a varsity blues jersey or not and then I think I finally, you know, let go of feeling guilty about playing for Taylor. Like we we do these things and like in sports where you know, where we dedicate our season 
to this player. And, like, so we did. We dedicated our season to Taylor. But what does that mean if we don't win a game? Does it does it mean anything? Like, mm-hmm. if we're memorializing these athletes by by doing things like that, like, what does it say about the team? Like, does it say that we don't, we don't remember her because we can't, you know, pull it together for 80 minutes? Like, so it's, it's really, really problematic. And even some of the language we use, you know, when we talk about sport itself, it's problematic. Like, we're going to battle for 80 minutes. And it's like, okay, we're going to fight for 80 minutes. But then, like, if we don't win, does that mean, like, we lose? But does that make us losers? Does that mean we're not warriors? We're not fighters? We're not survivors? Like, when we talk about cancer, for example, like, we talk about like, battles with cancer. And so you lose your battle and you're you're not a survivor like so it's really it's really tricky to to talk about these things and to try to find a balance between like you know like owing not owing Taylor playing for Taylor but like playing for my myself in a way that is that I feel you know like memorializes Taylor in a way that's that's good for my relationship to her that's pretty cool that you think that way. I think you have a really deep self-awareness. And as well, you really you do a good job of questioning established norms and wanting to improve on them and find other ways that we can better our teams and society at large. You know, I was talking to Joshua Black earlier um, before we were going to do this podcast. We were discussing a little bit and I was trying to compare it to other things in life and you can compare it a lot to the working world. So once you, you know, a lot of people graduate, they, they get a job and then they go into these work environments, offices or, or factories, what have you. And we don't really realize it, but we spend a lot of the time with those people we work with. Often the case, most of the time, we see our coworker more than we see our spouse or our loved ones or our kids. So when people die around you in the work environment, or let's say you're, you know, you're in marketing and you're in the marketing department and, you know, the person who you've been working with eight hours a day or and usually more, you know, they pass away. How does, how do you grieve? How does the office grieve? And I find it's a lot of, the, it's very similar to what you've been saying about in terms of the team aspect, because, you know, work will allow a day or two to grieve or they'll bring in um, people you can talk to, um, you know, some sort of help service that, you know, hey, if you need a moment, it's okay. You can, you know, go talk to this person or, you know, crying's allowed, but, you know, three months after it happened, six months after it happened, is crying still going to be allowed? So I'm really happy that you're bringing up these questions because, again, it'll help improve our society at large where we're just not going with emotions and going with things that we've done, thinking that, oh, yeah, this is the way we do it, I guess. Would you agree with that? Yeah, of course. Just to what you were saying about, like, my self-awareness, like, that took a lot, a lot of encouraging to kind of dig deeper into this because, you know, with autoethnography, like, you're critically analyzing yourself, and so you have to be vulnerable, and, like, you're already vulnerable because you're talking about, you know, the death of, like, one of your friends or teammates, but to go even deeper into that and like I think by like re-examining like my wounds almost like like our wounds are are often openings into the best and like most beautiful parts of us but to talk about it is one thing but to sit there and and write about it where every word is so laborious because you're you filtered it through like 
am I allowed to say this? Am I allowed to grieve like this? So to sit there and to write it all, um, it's, it's a lot, it's very, very, very challenging. And I think like writing as inquiry, it's just like an underestimated art because you're expected to, you know, take these words, you know, these combinations of the 26 letters of the English alphabet and like paint these like beautiful pictures in other people's minds of your, of your experience. And sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's very, very abstract and people won't understand it, especially when you're, when you're talking about grief and things that are, that are difficult topics for people to begin with, but to try to open yourself to that, it's, it's a lot, it's not always, it's not always perceived well. And when you're grieving, like in teen situations or, any sort of group context, like the grief is almost compounded because everybody individually is experiencing this grief and there's no, there's no blanket approach to, you know, helping everyone through their grief and cyclical, it's seasonal. It's, it's never, it's never linear. And like, it's always so fragmented. So to try to put it together and make sense of it and to make sense of your grieving experience, it's the most, it's the most difficult thing I think that I've ever had to do. So I'm really looking forward to finishing up this project as, as best as I can. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. And everyone's grief is so unique. And that's what makes it, I think, like helping others can be a very a challenge, right? Like not everyone can do an MA, right? Or, you know, like can do their thesis uh, on grief. And, but you had the chance to do that and you're finding a benefit by doing that in your grief journey. I think that's just wonderful that you've you found a way, and it's a unique way, that not everyone has or would want to do to look within themselves a little deeper. So I'm I'm you know just very honored to have spoken with you about this and to hear sort of how you sort of approach grief and and the I said the the beauty of what you're finding in a sense of yourself, because that's gonna help many people uh, as you move forward in life. Yeah, so moving forward now, since we're running out of time, I've had like a, you know, a ton of other questions I wanted to ask you about loss and about the topic, but we might have to have it on again. Um, so going to dreams, have you ever dreamt of anyone that have passed? I haven't had any dreams of anyone that's passed, but I've been, I've had dreams where like I've, I've woken up from them freaking out because in my dream, you know, someone had passed away, but nobody was telling me who. And so I'd wake up, you know, I'd, I'd check my phone. I'd have no messages, no missed calls. And I'd go on Facebook. I'd spend like, you know, it'd be like 2, 3 a.m. And I'd be going through being like, okay, like who, who died? Somebody died. But I've never had any, any actual dreams. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so yeah. you're like, you had dreams of someone dying. And when you woke up, you thought it was like precognitive in a way. And it made you think maybe someone did die. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be related to loss in a, in a way because it, it opens up those wounds about the, I guess, you never know when someone can pass, right? So the finality of life and how at any moment someone could pass away. So it's like the mind trying to trying to work with that a little bit. That's interesting. It's very interesting. I never really uh, heard a lot of dreams like that because most people will just talk about dreams of the deceased. So that's like a, a different type of dream, a grief dream. And so mm -hmm. looking at 
a dream maybe you may want to have, um, maybe of Taylor, what would that be? Honestly, like, I'm not sure because I haven't really, you know, dreaming isn't really how I would want to, you know, memorialize her. But if I, you know, had a dream with Taylor, we'd be, we'd be playing rugby. Like, that's what we did, you know. We'd be winning and, like, I'd have, like, fond memories of her. And, you know, oftentimes, like, my memories of her come, like, when I'm, when I'm not playing rugby. It's when I'm missing rugby that that like all these the, the good and bad memories come come circling in. But yeah, definitely you know rugby context of some sort, whether it's you know on the field or some of the parties after. But rugby was. I uh, like that, and yeah, that's cool. So what what position did she play? Why half? I'm gonna pretend I know what that is. <laughs> 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 but that's interesting that's cool i like how you said you're, you're winning the game too right like why not yeah <laughs> and it would be a, would it be a team you're playing against that you guys always had maybe like a rivalry with um you know we played our best most comfortable game like the most like we were so gelled as a team against against laurier and it was a it was a tight game at first but in the second half we we cracked it open pretty good i think we won like 43 to 13 or something um and i just remember like the second half you know taylor and a couple of my other teammates in the back line like we were we were laughing the whole time like we were joking like you know but like our place but then like rugby would turn on and like it was like instinctual almost you know how like we knew exactly where the other person was going to be and we had each other's backs we weren't missing tackles and so yeah, definitely against against Laurier. Do you have any dreams of just rugby? Like, do you ever dream of playing rugby and like kind of going through the motions or tackling or anything like that? Not not so much uh, anymore. But when I was playing regularly, I would. But I'm sure I will again in September when I put a jersey on. But it's just been it's been a couple years now since I've played, and so I don't really have like the, the dreams of, of playing rugby that's interesting because so i had a lot of football dreams after i finished high school football which is when my football career ended but um yeah i had a lot of these football dreams where i'd be playing on the team the guys would be around and i also you know had dreams actually going through the motions tackling and stuff like that because you know i i missed it in my waking life i really missed the teamwork the camaraderie um you know it's a different experience that a lot it's hard to describe to people if they've never been in that type of group environment because you really are especially when you're playing um like let's face it a violent sport you know you're in it you're you're in it you're in a battle and you know your your brothers or your sisters are beside you and you know it's it's intense and you develop this bond so you know i really I, i feel that speaking with you that you know, how important it is and how important it is as well to, to, you know, remember Taylor in that aspect. So, you know, thank you for sharing a lot of that. Shout out to Sir Winston. Shout out to my football buddies. <laughs> well, I, I remember them now, you know, I want, I want to talk to those guys, you know, all these like awesome memories we had together. Um, but yeah, Katie, we're going to wrap up. Uh, it's been great. Thank you for sharing your experiences and also 
thank you for the work uh, that you're doing and, you know, in the community and at large. And I, you know, keep that self-awareness and, you know, keep asking those questions to kind of push the envelope and also um, make those changes that need to happen in sport. And I hope you can maybe when you go to Toronto and you do play that, you know, maybe bring some of those things with you um, to that team over there. Um, what are some of your handles where people can reach you or contact you if they want to ask a question or, you know, just uh, about what you're doing? Uh, I'm most accessible by email at kf10gt at brockview.ca. No, I have a very small social media footprint, if I'm being honest. <laughs> okay, no worries, no worries. Um, yeah, that's I think that's a good enough place um, where people can, you know, contact you if they have a question. Um, you know, if they're listening to this and want to implement something like that into uh, whatever programs that they're operating, whatever teams that they're doing, and maybe they have some new idea about how to incorporate grieving into the sports world, into a team environment. Um, so awesome. So we will give our uh, handles. Please check us out at our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter, at Grief Dreams. And this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, and many other podcasting platforms. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us your story and what you would like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. So, as always, we like to end it with love and gratitude from us to you. beginning. beginning.